1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guests are John DeFerrari and Douglas Peter Sefton, to talk about their book Sixteenth Street uh, Northwest, Washington D.C.'s Avenue of Ambitions, uh, John De Ferrari is a trustee of the D.C. Preservation League and the author of three previous books: Lost Washington D.C., Historic Restaurants of Washington D.C., and Capitol Streetcars. Douglas Peter Sefton is a, is very active in historic preservation since the early two thousand and serves as a trustee of the D.C. Preservation League. I want to thank you both very much for taking the time to talk with me today. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here, Brian. So before we uh, jump right in, could you both maybe tell
1: us a little bit more about yourselves? I know I went through that pretty quickly. John, you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm uh, a a native Washingtonian, born and raised here in the in the District of Columbia. Love the city. Uh, went to went to school here first before getting a master's degree at Harvard later, and that was in English. And I'm I'm a writer, um, really by profession, and uh, have always loved the city and its built environment and the buildings here, and uh, uh, that over time led me to start writing blogging about, uh, buildings, historic buildings in the city. And uh, one thing led to another. And I, as, as you mentioned, Brian, I've written a, f- a few books before, and and this one uh, is, is, a, is a real favorite because I grew up just off of 16th Street and I still live within walking distance of it and have known it my whole life. It's, it's a really vibrant residential street in the city. So it's, it's great to get the chance to, to tell its biography. Uh, yeah. So, Peter, how about you? Well, you know, I can't
2: say I'm a native Washingtonian, but I like to think I'm working on it. I came down here to go to college uh, now, you know, 50 years ago and uh, been around ever since. I've uh, lived, had two tours of duty on 16th Street, one in the early 1970s and then one a later in the early 1980s. And uh, I, I had some of the classic 16th Street experiences and soaked up a lot of the atmosphere and it stayed with me ever since. I love the city too. Uh, I think what got me into historic preservation was walking around when my kids were teenagers and wanted to see the places where I lived, and seeing how much some of the neighborhoods had changed, and uh, you know how a lot of the things that I felt made Washington a really distinctive place were kind of just being eroded away, uh, you know, by progress or whatever. And so getting to write this book was a chance to go back and relive some of those times on 16th Street and re-experience how wonderful some of the buildings on 16th are uh, and how much they struck me when
0: I was new to the city. Thank you very much. And so uh, diving right in, and I know this is going to be kind of a vague overview of a lot of what we're going to talk about. You know, one of the things that stuck out to me is I think most of us are familiar with the street. Some of us might not know it's actually referred to, that name. I know I didn't. But I think what stands out a lot is the fact that it has a very diverse background of uses, you know, population racially, economically, it's very interesting mix of building types, et cetera. So again, I, I'm aware that's a bit of an overview, but maybe we could start there to talk about.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, it's Well, 16th Street is one of the grand avenues, according to Peter L'Enfant's plan for the federal city, he specified that certain streets would be wider and grander than than others, and and people think of Pennsylvania Avenue and some of the other states avenues and and uh, the streets to the capital. Um, but Sixteenth Street, um, lowly name as it has, uh, ended up being one of those grand avenues, and that is because it does uh, lead directly. You know, due north from the White House. Uh, so it's it's a um, it's it's a long street. It goes seven miles to the Maryland border. So that's that's a long street, a ramrod straight the whole way, and it changes a lot over its length. It starts out uh, just just north of the White House, just north of Lafayette Square, um, and in a in the downtown area of the city. And that those first couple blocks there are now, uh, people may know them as Black Lives Matter Plaza. They were re- rechristened that in in, in 2020. Um, so so the, so that the, the tip of 16th Street has a very uh, important now the uh, significance uh, for for uh, racial equality for uh, and and for diversity if you will, as well. Uh, so the street goes out. It goes through some downtown blocks that where there are office buildings and goes quickly into a residential area um, that used to be really uh, fashionable with, with wealthy houses, uh, with the houses of the wealthy. And some of those are still around, and we, we talk about them. And then it, the street moves further north over Meridian Hill, um, past some embassies that were built, and into an area where there are lots of apartment buildings for for uh, people of all types. There's a large, vibrant uh, Latino community o- along Sixteenth Street, the upper part of Sixteenth Street, uh, and, and and so it's important that way. And then you keep going further up towards Maryland, and you get to the the area that that used to be called the Gold Coast. And that was the area where uh, African-Americans, uh, well-to-do African-Americans, were, were moving in and, and building houses and moving into existing houses that, that uh, are, are very distinguished uh, in, during the, the 20th century. Um, so, so there's a lot going on on the city, uh, on the street.
0: And what's interesting, you, bring, you actually bring up you know, L'Enfant, Charles and L'Enfant and the fact that it's kind of getting a lot of presence right now as the black lives matter plaza but i think what i don't something you bring up in the book that's very interesting to talk about is you know it's being modeled after a grand avenue in paris which is actually contradictory to the fact that it's you know the road to the white house and so i was, I, I, I i happen to know the answer but could you explain to us why that is an interesting
1: contradiction that i'm sorry brian i'm not following the, the what what the contradiction is
0: oh sorry uh, that uh so the road is modeled you know it's designed by l'enfant hopefully i'm saying that right and it's based on you know it's based on a lot of versailles layout. however you know considering the road is leading up to the white house and it's supposed to stand for democracy you know to take a quote right out of your book the the reality is the re you know it's modeled after versailles in which the roads were Created like that to help carriages move faster to get away from poor people, and it was often used for parades and things like that.
1: Yeah, that's that is a, an interesting little uh, 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 ambiguity there. the um, The streets are certainly modeled after after um, you know uh, imperial streets in, in Versailles and France and so forth, and uh, that was maybe the inspiration of the design, but. Certainly, they were never intended to to uh, reflect that in in Washington, and there was a lot of, of aspiration that the streets um, e- even the streets themselves would 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 project democracy uh, L'enfant thought of them the streets as the arteries and the body the democratic body you know pumping blood. To, uh, throughout the body of the of the of democracy so maybe a little bit <laughs> um, uh, embroidered there but um, but it, it was definitely the idea was that was that these were going to project uh, democracy and not and nothing else
2: Yes I, th- I think one thing that John's captured there very well is that 16th Street is uh, it has many the different segments of it have many different personalities as he's described. As a landscape, it has many different layers in the same areas that, you know, if you look closely at the buildings, you can see earlier layers of development that persist, sometimes even just as like mere shadows in the present day landscape. But uh, when you look at it, you can really see sort of the development of the whole city mirrored in single neighborhoods.
0: And so speaking of, you know, the population and then kind of the periods of development, So you you specifically mentioned Gold Coast, you know, for affluent African-Americans, you know, but as I mentioned earlier, it's interesting how diverse the population of the street was. Sadly, however, just like a lot of areas, you know, it, it did fall victim to the same kind of gentrification and kind of racist policy that seemed to affect, you know, a lot of almost every neighborhood across the country.
2: Yes, I think we were struck by how, you know, these questions of gentrification and, you know, inequality are are certainly nothing new. And they, you know, they appeared in the 1880s on 16th Street, as you know, a a very long established African-American community uh, just north of Lafayette Square was kind of supplanted and uprooted and replaced by much richer people who, you know, would buy up the houses and build very grand mansions there. Uh, And and certainly that's sobering that... uh, you know, how, how persistent these problems really are. I, I think Black Lives Matter Plaza, to me, was a very hopeful healing gesture after some of this history of racism and displacement that this street is getting, getting you know, now, now kind of making that as, as a symbol of it.
0: And so you had mentioned you know, that there's a lot of rich people that bought up the street and kind of were there. And so as I hinted before we started recording, I, you know, I don't often ask about specific people and dates. However, one figure is very clearly worth talking about in the book. And there's many, but I think one person really comes to mind, and that is Mary Henderson, who I had no exposure to before your book. And so again, I hate to keep giving you these big <laughs> overview questions, but I think a lot of our viewers don't know who she is. And I, it, I would love if you could enlighten them to who she was.
1: Peter, you want to jump in on that one?
2: Uh, Yeah, well, we can collaborate on it. Uh, She's such a, a, you know, she contains such multitudes that it's very hard for us to, you know, one person to really sum her up. But Mary Henderson was actually, she was from upstate New York, and she came here during the Civil War and uh, married a a senator who was from Kentucky, who was much her uh, senior, or sorry, from Missouri, John Henderson, who's much her senior. And uh, they eventually... uh, moved back out to St. Louis and then in the late 1880s, I think largely because he had some greater political aspirations, moved back to the city and became a big force in the settlement of 16th street above what was then the city line where Washington DC, the city met, uh, you know, the County of Washington that was unincorporated and there the, uh, the Hendersons built what was one of the most monumental houses in the city, Henderson's castle which was a very castle-like grand house that they started in the late 1880s and were really building into the early 2000s. And Mary became a kind of civic leader and uh, in many things. She was an early vegetarian and proponent of vegetarian eating as a way of uh, conquering disease. And uh, eventually uh, she and her husband, there was a famous incident where they became uh, involved in a movement that was anti-alcohol and they poured their uh, wine cellar out into the gutter. And 16th Street ran with wine for several blocks, uh, which people came to lap up, supposedly to silk their handkerchiefs and lap up some of this you know, splendid vintage that was just being poured out. But her biggest thing, and I think, John, you're probably best for, you know, equipped to describe this, is that she had visions of making 16th Street into a very ceremonial, monumental kind of boulevard, uh, which she ultimately wanted to call Avenue of the President's and to build uh, mansions and kind of Beaux-Arts, magnificent buildings along
1: it. Uh, And John, maybe you could describe that in a little more detail. So yes, Mary Henderson, she was, she was quite a character. She was, sh- she was sure of what she wanted for 16th street and the city. And she was determined to get it. Um, and she, uh, was well-connected obviously through her, not just wealthy, but through her Senator, uh, uh, husband, uh, she was well-connected on the Hill. And so she often tried to pull strings sometimes successfully and sometimes not. And, uh, yeah, 16th Street, their, their adopted home street, uh, she wanted to turn into a very ceremonial street heading north from the White House. She really saw it as being as as important as Pennsylvania Avenue or even the mall in terms of the city and not, not everyone agreed with her. Um, and the Macmillan Commission, which designed a lot of the, of the city's monumental spaces in the early 20th century, did not agree with her and wanted to keep things on the mall. But in, okay, along the process, she uh, had a lot of ideas. One was to move the White House up to uh, a spot on Meridian Hill, um, this, this hill perched over overlooking the center of the city, and she had a commission to design for this massive uh, palace, really that sprawled over over the whole street. She even had the street drilled underneath as a tunnel to get to get underneath this this massive thing. Uh, well, it was too much, and and I think it was ridiculed a bit by by people as being pretentious. Uh, so that didn't happen. She also wanted to move uh, the Lincoln Memorial up there, or, or I, I'm sorry, the, the Lincoln Memorial hadn't been built yet, and she wanted it to be built there, and she commissioned a design for it on on top of Meridian Hill, a very uh, uh, imposing, you know, Greek revival uh, monument um, that uh, would have been very impressive. But uh, uh, again, they, that that got nixed because the the Commission of Fine Arts wanted to keep those monuments down on the mall. Um and then as 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 Peter mentioned, um just the name, sixteenth Street. It sounded too ordinary. You know, this is this is a grand avenue here. Let's call it the Avenue of the Presidents. And she even managed to get one of her friends on the hill to slip the name change into into one of the DC appropriations bills in nineteen seventeen. And for a short time, uh, the street was renamed Avenue of the Presidents, and then you know, as as quickly as it happened, it 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 got undone again. Uh, the next year's appropriations uh, had someone else slipped in something to change it back to Sixteenth Street. So um, that was. Uh, I think most people just thought some of this stuff was being too pretentious they and so uh yeah so so that was a short-lived and it, of the present.
0: and I thank you so much for elaborating on that the reason I specifically asked as an architect again i i when I look into the, the I looked into the street after reading and know I was going to interview it's interesting that for the longest time, there was a very strong oppo- opposition to multifamily buildings. And as an architect, that's the first thing I notice when I look at the street now. And so it's an interesting part of the book that at some point when her influence kind of disappears, all of a sudden the street becomes flooded with multifamily apartment buildings.
2: Yeah, she fought for quite a while and she she managed, you know, to defend Meridian Hill from this onslaught of apartment buildings for a few years uh there was one that was built Meridian Mansions i believe she kind of kind of got built very close to the castle but she you know she she felt she had had, i believe some input in the design of that and so it was was not quite the crisis it might have been but yes there she was was very eventually overrun kind of by modernity as and you know at the right as in her elder years as she was losing her influence uh
1: yeah, she you know there was there was another very prominent developer Harry Wardman, uh, an Englishman who was uh, building a lot of apartment buildings and and the, the two of them uh, were kind of at loggerheads and she was often casting aspersions on on all his development projects and wanting his apartment buildings to not be built. Uh, there was one just below Meridian Hill called the Roosevelt uh, that she successfully. Prevented them from building some uh, decorative loges on the on the rooftop. They were going to make rooftop gardens, um, which you know actually might have been quite nice. But uh, but she got a, a bill passed in Congress to to uh, to cut the height off, and 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 so those apartments have a flat roof. <laughs>
0: And so you know, it, it, again, we're talking about a lot of what her vision was, but I think there was a lot of people that's that said vision. One thing that is I guess somewhat depressing, and I'd love to talk about it unfortunately, is the fact that for such a historic street, and uh, double check my note here, you mentioned that out of all these historic, you know, very grandiose mansions by the spice nineteen sixty, there was only three left. And I think it's that it then goes on and says that within a ten years, only one would survive. And I guess the question is, so is there a reason that this, this street lost all of its you know, grand historic things? I mean, many would argue that we want more multifamily housing, but it's interesting to think that something so close to the White House could go through so much upheaval and modern change.
2: Yeah, I, I would say more than three grand houses have survived. I'd have to look back I,
1: at that. Yeah, let me, I think that you were talking there about that stretch below Scott Circle. Yes, where, yes, yep. Yeah. yeah, that's just, so there's still houses above that.
2: Yeah, yeah, Scott Circle is maybe, I don't know what, maybe not quite a mile north of the White House, so there are a lot above Scott's Circle or, or some still. But, you know, the push for, you know, by, by the 1920s, those, you know, big, when people didn't have servants anymore routinely and, you know, fashion had moved to other districts, They were kind of unsustainable. A great many of the great mansions, they had a life cycle where they sort of declined into being, you know, first cut up into apartments and then becoming rooming houses. And, uh, you know, during World War II, a lot of them were famous for being cut up into many small rooms and being rooming houses for all the people who came to Walshman for war work. And then the next phase of their evolution was often they were torn down to be on the footprint of apartment houses,
1: yeah, and those, those blocks um, close to the White House uh, just became too valuable for commercial use. And so there was huge pressure on just on those few blocks. There's only uh, four, three or four blocks, um, but, but those all turned to, turned to office buildings, really, with a, a couple of exceptions.
2: Right. And then the Statler Hilton Hotel at 16th and K replaced like about four, probably four or five of the remaining, you know, most magnificent mansions. And then the Hay Adams and Carlton Hotels uh, replaced the, uh, you know, the H.H. Richardson houses that were built for John Hay and, uh, uh, you know, Henry Adams and Nicholas Anderson. So hotels were very big. Actually, were very big killers down there, too. Uh, for some of the most magnificent houses
0: you know you specifically mentioned office building commercial buildings and so from what I gathered it seems like for a large part of its history the street despite its diversity did not have a lot of commercial buildings is that is that accurate
1: yeah that that is it was uh unique in having a uh, an, an ordinance a very early ordinance around 1905 uh the city pulled residents on on 16th Street and they all or many of them wanted uh, uh, limits um, preventing any commercial development and the the street was still at the beginning of the 20th century was still young and still not well developed so so the prohibition came in then. And uh, then, when citywide uh, uh, zoning was 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 first started in 1920, uh, that was codified that 16th Street would be non-commercial. So it's had that that uh, limit on it for for its you know most of its life. Interesting. And so, all, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say the you know another uh, uh, key element of that is uh, the lack of a streetcar. Um, so. A lot of the other major streets in the city had streetcars, and streetcars really attract commercial business because, obviously, they've got people traveling on them, and in the old days, that was the way to get around the city. Uh, So uh, the fact that 16th Street never had a streetcar also uh, was one way to to keep uh, commercial businesses away.
0: And it's funny you mention that because, it, you know, it's very unique that it didn't have a streetcar, and then it's almost unique for the complete opposite end of the spectrum that it was, if I, if I understand correctly, it was one of the first bus routes, public bus routes.
1: Yeah. Well, that actually, that, those fit together. Um, so when the bus company, uh, also in around 1920, uh, the first major, uh, you know, bus company to do to set up business, they argued in, for, in front of the Public Utilities Commission that, hey, we're going to set up our route on 16th Street. That way we're not competing with the streetcar lines. And they said, okay, we'll let you do that. So it was specifically, again, this was a major thoroughfare that did not have streetcar service. So it was almost a natural first choice for for a bus route. And, uh, and it's been... Uh, to this day, uh, the, the the bus route on Sixteenth Street is one of the most heavily used and uh, uh, bus routes in the city.
2: Yes, and interestingly, it was such a scenic boulevard that uh, for quite a while in the, or at least in the nineteen thirties, maybe back to the twenties, they ran double decker buses. You know, with an open top, and you know, you could ride there and sort of see the the beautiful vistas, uh, which is fairly unique for Washington.
0: Absolutely. And so I don't have a good segue here so I apologize. <laughs> but when when we when we started the interview you you know obviously as as we've said, you know, Black Lives Matter, it's being referred to as Black Lives Matter Plaza. And so something again I'm not it's I'm always fascinated when I learn about things I probably should know more about. This street is not a stranger to political upheaval and kind of protests and so from the, you know, one reading, it seems like, because I, I didn't know this, it housed many embassies, which ended up being targeted quite often, both for vandalism and, and protesting, correct?
2: Yes, especially in the 1930s, it seemed to have attracted like a fairly high proportion of some of the, uh, you know, the the sort of fascist leaning uh you know, uh, nations, embassies, and, you know, Spain and, and Italy. And yes, those were really a center of protest and picketing and, uh, you know, of, of all sorts. It was very active there. It was quite, it was quite, it was, Mary Henderson was dead at that point for a few years. But uh, it was like the antithesis of her vision of this sedate, calm, beaux arts, decorous diplomatic landscape. And then,
1: no, they couldn't escape all the things that were happening in the world. Yeah, and that continued. Of course, there's also the what was the Russian embassy, um, the, the Pullman Mansion. And that was a, a, a scene for protests in the 60s and 70s, um, particularly um, protests by Jewish organizations against the way the Soviets were treating Jews at the time. Um, and then also, the, you know, Meridian Hill Park, which we've been talking about, uh, has been a place where people have organized protest marches, and they assemble there, and then they march down Sixteenth Street towards the White House. So it's a it's a great route uh, right to the center of power um, along Sixteenth Street.
2: Yeah, it certainly is. And some of the churches on Sixteenth have been very active in social protest movements in the nineteen sixties, particularly, and then later too. Uh, so yeah, it, it's it's it sort of is a highway to the front door of the White
0: House. And so, of course, I, I know you could both spend hours talking about its very rich, vast history, again, which I, I was not aware of. And I, I know I'm only scratching the surface. But one thing I, I'd love to hear your opinions on, especially, you know, of course, you know, it's a lot of old buildings, a lot of history. But I guess the question that comes to my mind as an architect is adaptive reuse of these buildings. You you, you hint at a little bit in the epilogue, but I'd be curious to hear your take on, you know, what is happening, what could be happening and
2: Yeah, I I think there has been, particularly some of the larger houses, you know, have been adaptively reused. They've gone from being, some of them become embassies, you know, or, or diplomatic buildings that used to be just private houses, those sorts of things. Many buildings have become condos that, uh, you know, used to be private houses. And, uh, you know, so they're, they're, you know, multifamily at this point. I mean, there is, there is that, uh, angle happening. There's not a lot of open space on 16th for new development, although in the epilogue we do talk about some of the very architecturally uh, ambitious things that have been done uh, along, uh, you know, as, as infill and uh, there's the tapiris, uh you know, condominiums which are very luxurious, which replaced one of the very few commercial buildings north of Scott Circle, uh, a little one story restaurant that seemed to be closed more than it was open. And uh, that, that's really, uh, I think we have a picture in the book of that block of 16, which is every layer from the Victorians to uh, right up to this cutting edge 2000 building uh, that, that's really very, very historic. And, you know, I, I think a really beautiful building, uh, all sharp angles, glass and steel, and just captures how much architectural diversity there is in a few blocks
0: absolutely and you know when you look at it it's very clear that the architectural diversity and so i guess another question i have for you because you're much more familiar with it than i am like i said i think and i've said this multiple times now the thing that strikes stands out to me is how diverse the population the usage all of how diverse the street really is and so the question i have is you know having never been there myself is it still nearly as diverse both in its use population etc now than it had been in the past
1: yeah that's a that's a, that's a great um, subject for endless discourse, <laughs> um, you know, as, as diverse as it's been in the past. Well, um, the, the diversity has waxed and waned, I would say, um, there, because, there have you know, we talked about the gentrification on the downtown stretch that occurred. Um, we talked about Mary Henderson, and she certainly worked to, to force out some of the, the uh, mostly African American lower income people in that area um, when, when she pushed to have Meridian Hill Park built. So, um, so there's been a, a push and pull and some groups have, have, uh, you know, come and gone. Um, and, uh, you know, now absolutely have, have, you know, we have the same gentrification issues along 16th street that, that exist in, in a lot of big cities in their, in their central areas. Um, and certainly the, the, Property values have gone way up, and it's harder for for you know lower income people to to live on Sixteenth Street than than it was say twenty or thirty years ago. I th- I think uh, so. You know that's that's certainly there, um, but. But in the meantime, through all this history, there has been a lot of diversity and there are a lot of people that are now established and have roots. And as I mentioned, for example, the Latino community that came in beginning in the 60s and 70s, they're, they're there. They're not going anywhere. Um, and, uh, and the same with, with other groups, too. So, so I, I kind of feel like it's a mixed bag. I don't know what you think, Peter.
2: Yeah, I mean, my take would be that in, let's say, the 1870s, 1880s, you did have, you know, African-American and white people living in close geographic proximity. They were in no way had social equality or anything like economic equality. Uh, You know, how, how much did they really mix and, you know, how much, you know, and on what basis? You know, yeah, they were around and they were living in, you know, adjacent blocks. But, you know, is that really diversity? Uh, in in, a, in any sort of you know very real sense of of you know participating in the same social universe today I think it's much more diverse in that sense but uh, you know and that you have other groups who weren't present in the 1880s are big parts of the 16th Street community so in in, in a way that's on a more it, it's it's probably on a more equal social footing and there probably is more. It, interaction as a community i would think and that but that's just a hypothesis interesting Um, and then the other thing that's happened i think quite a bit is that in in you know in previous years you know uh 16th street you know you had people you had people who there there were a lot of families seemed to live there and particularly even in some of the apartment houses had rather large old-fashioned apartments with uh you know the trend you know the the refurbishing of those buildings as condominiums starting in the 1980s and going forward that you become they become much more the apartments become much more cut up and then become condominiums that would be more suitable as housing for a couple or you know a single individual than you know a family with a bunch of children as some of them were in the old days so i think in that sense maybe it's become a little less diverse in terms of you know the percentage of you know families and that sort of thing
0: well, it's interesting, you mentioned the push and pull, you know, there was obviously a big gentrification effort. And then you actually just mentioned, you know, the 60s to the 80s, the idea that the population almost inverse due to, you know, white flight, and the removal of racist covenants and government available jobs. And so when you say push and pull, is that kind of what you're referring to how it just seems like occasionally based on a cycle, one group starts to have more ownership of the area?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, it's, um, you know, er everybody's trying to stake a claim, um, for, for their vision of, of what, um, what it should be like to, to be able to live, uh, you know, live a fulfilling life. And everyone has a different idea. And, and yeah, as you say, um, they, they, who's, who's on top at any given moment, uh, has keeps changing. And, and that's probably a good thing. <laughs> um, we wouldn't, we really don't want, uh, Mary Foote Henderson to dictate exactly how everything's going to happen on 16th street. We, we, I think we've, we've, uh, really uh, benefited from the fact that so many different people have, have, uh, uh, you know, tried out and done their best to, to build their own visions.
2: Yes. T- to me, 16th street is kind of, it's kind of a museum of, uh, past ambitions in addition to everything else and it you know it, it it shows us i think that you know our our ambitions uh you know maybe as transitory as some of the earlier ones and hopefully you know some some of our better ones will persist
0: so now that the book's been finished what project is kind of next what what are you what is what's taking up your time now that the book's been finished <laughs>
2: Well, we're both very active in historic preservation through the historic, you know, the preservation league. So we're each working on some different nominations for historic buildings that we hope will be historic and will be preserved. Uh, You know, I I personally am sort of gathering my wits after this book and uh, thinking a little bit about a sequel. I don't know. John, I think is a little further along.
1: Yeah, no, it's yes. We're, we're, Peter and I are both very busy on, on historic preservation. And incidentally, 16th Street is much of the the, the lower part of 16th street is protected it's an historic district two different historic districts in in the city and the city has a very strong preservation laws so so we're very fortunate in that regard but yeah for for me um yeah we're we're busy publicizing the new book um and i'm i'm thinking about possible topics for for something to come haven't uh, decided on one yet but uh i'm I'm anxious to to write more about the the history of the District of Columbia.
0: Very interesting. Perhaps we can all talk again in the future. That would be, that would be very wonderful. You know, it's uh,
2: it's funny. As much as is written about Washington, it seems to uncover new topics to write about. I can only imagine. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's kind of every every answer raises about four or five new questions that uh,
0: somebody should really sit down and answer. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you both again for being here with me.
2: No, it was great. I enjoyed it. And uh, I'll certainly
0: tune into your podcast. (laughs) Glad to hear it. And for everybody listening, the book is 16th Street Northwest, Washington, D.C.'s Avenue of Ambitions. I want to thank you for listening and have a great day.